Please turn with me to Romans chapter 1. <clears throat> Our text this, mer- this morning is verses 16 and 17. Romans chapter 1, verses 16 and 17, a very familiar uh, passage to us, one that uh, we have probably heard numerous times, especially when we talk about the Reformation, we talk about Martin Luther. Um, This is one of the passages, especially that Luther delighted in. Uh, because of what it taught concerning the righteousness of God and what that meant about salvation being by faith alone, all of that. Uh, This was a great joy to Luther, and not only to Luther, but to uh, many others, especially uh, within that time, understanding that salvation comes by faith alone. Because that's really much of the question. How can man be right before God? How may man come into the presence of God? Uh, Hold your place there in Romans. I'm going to turn over here to Job. Because in the book of Job, when Job's friend Eliphaz begins to dialogue with Job, he says something very interesting that tends to spark some of the conversation in the the book. He says in chapter 4, verse 13, Amid disquieting thoughts from the visions of the night, when deep sleep falls on men... Dread came upon me in trembling and made all my bones shake. Then a spirit passed by my face. The hair of my flesh bristled up. It stood still, but I could not discern its appearance. A form was before my eyes. There was silence. Then I heard a voice. Can mankind be just before God? Can a man be pure before his maker? He puts no trust even in his servants, and against his angels he charges error How much more those who dwell in the houses of clay, whose foundation is in the dust, who are crushed before the moth. Now, I read this because we tend to forget exactly what Paul is saying here in Romans 1, verses 16 and 17. We tend to think like Eliphaz did, and in my opinion, when the Lord uh, had said to Satan that he may do a number of different things, but he couldn't kill Job, all of that. My opinion is, is that since Satan was also inciting Job's friends against him, that when Eliphaz speaks of the spirit that had passed by him and began to ask these questions to put these thoughts in his mind, I think it was Satan. And Satan's thought that he put into Eliphaz's mind is, how can man be right before God? He, he charges error against the angels. He charges error against his servants. How much more does he you? And this is where this text really applies so much to the Christian life and gives such joy as Luther understood it because that question is for all the ages. How can man be righteous before God? And the problem is, is we often allow things that happen in our own life or allow the the enemy to put thoughts in our minds, if you look at it that way, to make us doubt whether or not we are truly in the faith. How can I be just before God? And this passage really speaks to those who question the assurance of salvation. 
We understand not only justification by faith within this passage, which is the core of our faith, the core of the Christian faith, as far as salvation, but understanding as well that these words that Paul is using here, speaking of the gospel itself, he's already elaborated on what the gospel is, but then he begins to say, this is the power of God unto salvation. This is what brings people to faith. This is the instrument in God's hand in order that he brings his people to faith. This is, this is needful for our day, too, because it has been common practice to use all kinds of methods within the church in order to get unbelievers into the church that they may be saved, but they're not going to be saved apart from the gospel. And that's what many seeker-sensitive churches don't understand. I think we have all these people out here searching for God. We've got to figure out a way to get them into the church. And when we get them into the church, all we've got to do is talk about Jesus, and surely that'll be good enough. But at what point in making these people feel good do you say to them, you are a sinner before God and you are in need of salvation? When do you say that? Well, if you say that, then they're going to go right back out the door. So we've got to use all kinds of methods to get them in, and then we justify ourselves that, well, they're here. Many churches do that. Many churches, perhaps many denominations, many throughout the history of the church, also see perhaps that the gospel in and of itself is insufficient. How do we know that? Well, because all the extra things that they come up with in order to be just before God. You have to do works of penance. You have to do the sacraments. You have to be baptized. You have to do works of righteousness. You have to live in a way that honors God as best as you can for the purpose of attaining salvation. What are they saying when they come up with these new ideas? They're saying the gospel isn't enough. We've got to do more. And you have to do more. What does that do? Well, that then makes, uh, makes us question the assurance of salvation. What am I placing my faith in? Now, often we reject, you know, the, the, the Romish church and all the things that they come up with in order to do this, do this for the purpose of salvation. And yet we, we, we rebrand it and we bring it in in a different way. Well, you got to do this. You got to live this way. These are things that you must do. So what exactly is it that God requires for salvation? Um, what, what does God require that we may come into his presence favorably? What things can we do? What works can we accomplish that God would be pleased with us and say, you may come? Doing good Living as righteously as possible, will that suffice? Will that be good enough? The answer is no. Nothing will suffice left to ourselves. Because sin deserves death, and there are none that are without sin. So what do we do? What can we rely on? What do we, what do we hope in? What is the object of our faith then? And that's where Paul comes in with this passage and says, 
The gospel is the good news. This is where the righteousness of God is revealed. This is the power of God and the salvation to everyone who believes. And it's all of faith. And that's what the apostle emphasizes for us in this passage. And so my prayer as we go through this, this text of scripture that we all love and we've all uh, quoted probably a number of times. Is that our hearts will be open and that our minds will be open to receive what the apostle is saying. So that we may be encouraged by it, that we may be comforted in it and take joy in it just as Luther did it as well. When he came to understood the meaning of this passage. If you would, let us stand together if you're able. Give honor to God's word. <clears throat> Romans chapter 1 verses 16 and 17. This is God's holy, inspired, inerrant, authoritative, infallible words. Let us give our attention to the Holy Scripture. Verse 16. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, but the righteous man shall live by faith. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we humble ourselves before you this day. We have come here to worship you to ascribe worth to you, to bring ourselves low, to remember what grace that we have received in your Son, the Lord Jesus. We pray, Father, that, that you would help us this day to focus our minds upon the majesty of Christ, upon his gospel, upon his work, upon his identity, upon everything that he accomplished for us. Father, we pray that you would teach us you would guide our thoughts, that the Spirit of God would move mightily within our hearts to make this passage a reality for us, that we don't just gloss over it, but that we understand the magnitude as best as we can of this, this portion of your word. We would take such delight and joy, Father, in what you have accomplished in your Son. We pray that you bless the preaching of your word, may it accomplish all you desire in us, for it's in Jesus' name, and all of God's children said, Amen. Please be seated. <clears throat> Last Lord's Day, we were working our way through the previous verses, of course, as Paul is still giving his introduction uh, to the people in Rome, people that he's never met. A church that he never established, but a church that he is seeking to lock arms with, um, to minister to, for them to minister to him. He, ex he expresses uh, that he, he, his great affection for them and how he desired to come to them. He planned to come. He's been restrained from coming. And we talked about that perhaps that was because Claudius had expelled all the Jews from Rome. Uh, after Claudius had died, they were permitted to come back. Uh, that's one reason why you find Priscilla and Aquila uh, where they were when Paul met them. He says that he's under obligation. He's a debtor to Christ because of, of all that he had done, perhaps still remembering the sinner that he was and what a rebel that he was and persecuting the church of Christ, that he views the gospel and he views the privilege that he has in Christ 
as that, as a privilege to be able to share the gospel that God is using him to do so even in view of what he had done. So he is under obligation to all people, whether to Jews, whether to Greeks, to barbarians, to the wise, to the foolish, and he's eager to preach the gospel to those who are in Rome. And as he expresses his affection and his desire of what he hopes will come to pass, as he desires to be there and to preach the gospel, this is where verse 16 really takes off from. Verse 16 is in connection with the previous verse. For my part, I'm eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome, for I am not ashamed of the gospel. Now, why does he say that? Well, one, you could look at it in the sense that he's introducing himself to this congregation. Perhaps they've heard of him. He's establishing who he is. He's an apostle. He's one who sinned. He's a bondservant of Christ. He's orthodox in his beliefs. It's in connection with the Old Testament. We've went over all of that. And he says to those who are in Rome, I'm eager to get there, and I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Why does he say that? He's not ashamed... He says he's not ashamed of the gospel, for it's the power of God and the salvation. He says in 1 Corinthians 1.18 that the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. He's not ashamed of the gospel that has the power to save. Perhaps he is viewing, when he gets there, those that maybe he will encounter. Because he is under obligation to all men, is what he said in verse 14. There were many learned men in the ancient world. There were many popular philosophers. There were many uh, philosophers in Corinth and in Athens and no doubt in Rome. Many learned men. And what's Paul saying, perhaps in view of that? I have no... Reservations of preaching the gospel to them. I'm not ashamed of it. I'm not intimidated by these highly educated individuals. These many philosophers who claim to have all knowledge or to be the lovers of knowledge more so than others. And Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. I'm not ashamed to deliver that gospel, deliver that message to even the learned men of Rome and of Athens and of Corinth. And you find him, especially Paul, in Athens in Acts chapter 17. And what's he doing? He's debating with them. He's debating with the philosophers. He's establishing the truth of God. He's giving the gospel. You know, and and I emphasize this because... I think one problem that we often have is that we, we're, we're afraid when we're out sharing the gospel or we, we know people who, who we consider to be very, very smart people. And we say, well, if I, if I share the gospel with them, if I tell them about Christ or I even remotely try to tell them about Christ, perhaps they'll come up with some kind of big scientific whatever in order to try to refute me. And, and I just don't have that kind of a knowledge to, to speak back to them. And what do we forget? So, in that, well, in that sense, first off, we are a little ashamed of it because we think that it's, it's not sufficient enough to convince 
a person that has a high intellect. We've got to come up with something else. Maybe we need to study what they're doing. We need to study all this scientific stuff so that we can establish. And that's good to do. That is very good to do. But what are we missing? We're missing the fact that it's the power of God unto salvation. That is what we're missing. Why can Paul be so confident? Does Paul have all knowledge of all the philosophies that are out there? Would he have all knowledge of those particular philosophers who are in Rome? Probably not. Is Paul a smart man? Of course he's a smart man. He's obviously, he had studied Stoicism and Epicureanism in order to debate with the men in Athens in Acts chapter 17. But does he have knowledge of all the other philosophies that are there and who he's going to encounter in Rome? No, he doesn't. But what is he confident in? He's confident in the gospel being the power of God and the salvation. That's, what his, that's where his confidence is. He has no reluctance in preaching the gospel to whoever he encounters in Rome. Why? Because we read in Scripture, because in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not come to know God. God was well pleased through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. It's 1 Corinthians chapter 1. He was well pleased through the foolishness of the message preached, is what he says. God has made foolish the wise of the world. That's what he also says in 1 Corinthians 1. Regardless of all the knowledge that these philosophers may have and these men of high intellect, they still would never come to know God because their knowledge, their earthly knowledge, would never allow them to understand God. Never allow them to receive God, to, to accept the things of the Spirit of God is what Paul says. What can what can convert these men? What can grab a hold of them that they can see? It's the gospel. It's the gospel. And so Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. He takes delight in the gospel. Why? Because the gospel is all about Christ. It's, it's defined before, uh, beforehand in some of these verses it is Christ who he is. It's his identity. It's what he accomplished. Christ, the God-man, he takes on flesh. He accomplishes all that's necessary for salvation. He lives the perfect life. He satisfies God's justice. He did everything. Everything that was needed. And so then the good news is, your knowledge will never get you there. Because your knowledge, well, you can never come to know God. But through this message that we preach, you may come. You may know. It's the power of God. It's the power of God and the salvation. It is the efficacious means that God uses to bring his people to faith from all walks of life, from all nations. It's the same message. The same message for everybody. That's one reason why if you can't take American Christianity and drop it in another country and it work, then there's a problem. There's a problem. Because the message is the same. That Jesus died for sinners. This is the message. 
And so it is this particular message that is the power of God, the means that he uses in order to bring his people to faith. It is no other message. It is not a special testimony. It's not a special defense of the faith. It is the message of the cross. That's it. That's it. That's the only instrument to bring people to faith. You know, one, of my, one of my favorite passages, as I'm sure it probably is to some of you as well, is in Acts 18 when, when Paul gets to Corinth and he, he goes to the synagogue. There's a few people converted. Paul begins to preach. They run him out of the synagogue. And he gets a little upset. And he says, he shakes the dust off his feet. Your blood be on your own head. I'm going to the Gentiles. And then he has a vision from the Lord. And the Lord says to him, do not be afraid, but keep on preaching. For I have many people in this city. And you think, what? Who? There's a few people converted. What's he talking about? But if we understand in the sovereignty of God and in the doctrine of election and the means that God uses to bring his people to faith, he says to Paul, keep on preaching because this is the message, the power of God and the salvation. And I have many people in this city that need to hear it because I'm going to bring them to faith. It is the instrument in God's hand. And that's why recognizing that, that it was such a joy for Paul to preach the, the good news. Not just any good news, but the good news of Christ. Theodore Beza, he says, the main idea here is that the gospel, that the gospel is that in which God works, which he renders efficacious unto salvation. It's efficacious to save. It's sufficient enough to save. It's, it's powerful enough to save. The power of God unto salvation. And this salvation that he is referring to here uh, really carries the idea of, of rescuing, of, of delivering. Like delivering from what? Rescuing from what? It's not Satan. You're not being rescued from Satan. Regardless of what books that we've heard of or read Regardless of what movies and TV shows are out there, there's not this cosmic battle in which Satan is ruling over hell and God's ruling over the heavens and there's this big cosmic battle who can get the most souls or some kind of nonsense like that. As if Christ paid a ransom to Satan for the souls of those who would believe or... No. Nothing like that. Nothing like that. Christ did pay a ransom. He paid the ransom to his father. What are we being rescued from? Oh, a few things we can look at. I mean, rescued from sin. Sin no longer has any dominion over you. That you're, you're rescued, you're no longer lost, you're no longer alienated from the life that is in Christ because now you're brought near by the blood of Christ. You've been delivered from the darkness of idolatry, rescued from the darkness of idolatry. 
2 Corinthians 4, 6 says, For God who said light shall shine out of darkness is the one who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. But most importantly, you've been rescued from the wrath of God. Hendrickson says, To be saved means to be emancipated from the greatest evil and to be placed in the possession of the greatest good. You've been rescued from God's righteous judgment against sin from the wrath to come. And what was the message that rescued you from that wrath? It's the gospel. That's why it's the gospel that's, that's the power of salvation, the power of God and the salvation. Hendrickson writes this, he says, Are the Romans always boasting about their power, the force by which they have conquered the world? Speaking as Paul, he says, The gospel I proclaim, as it were, is superior by far. It is achieved and offers something far better, namely everlasting salvation, and this not for the people of one particular nation, for example, Rome, but for everyone who exercises faith. The most urgent and imperative need for the soul is not earthly renown, but peace, joy, and glory. This is the salvation that he has brought about in Christ through the message preached, the foolishness of the message preached. This is it. It, it doesn't have to have any other additions to it to make it better. How, how are you going to make the gospel better? God who rules over the heavens, who sustains everything by the word of his power, who spoke creation into existence by the word of his power, he takes on human flesh himself. And he carries out everything that he demands of you. He does it. And then instead of allowing you to even endure one degree of his wrath, which you rightfully deserve, instead he says, I'm going to take it myself. I'm going to take the wrath of God. And so he not only carries out the perfect life that's necessary he takes the wrath of his father upon himself, the wrath of almighty God for the sins of his people poured out upon one. So that not one degree would be experienced by you. And then he rises from the dead, showing his, his power and his might to conquer even death. And in doing so, he says to you, as I have risen, I will raise you. But what is required? Behold the Son. Look unto the Son. Believe in Him. That's why this is the good news. You can't add to the good news. He didn't do all of this. And then he says, now, I need you to continually take of the sacraments. Because... This, this grace that, that I am showing you or presenting to you or demonstrating for you has to continually be infused in you through this kind of a means. He doesn't say, I need you to be baptized. Make sure that that occurs because if you're not baptized, then you're not fully saved. He doesn't say, you need to do so many good works every day. Because that's, that's how you keep 
the salvation. He doesn't say any of that. He says, behold the Son and believe in Him. That's it. Can't get any simpler. But yet, this is the problem. Because we say, surely there has to be more. Surely I must be doing something else. And this is the point of what he's saying. No. This is for you who believe. And it does have that universal application. To everyone who believes. All kinds of people as we read of in in 1 Timothy. Titus. When you you see in Revelation 5 and you see the throne room of God, it's not just one particular nation there. It's people from all tribes, tongues, peoples, and nations. God is collected from all. Why? Because the nations are the inheritance of the Son. They're His. And He takes from all. And it is the same message that is preached to any person in any nation that is what brings them to faith. That is what allows them to receive this salvation that Paul is speaking of here. It comes to the Jew first because they're the ones who had received the gospel first as Christ preached to them. And then it went to the Gentiles. But all are equal. We need to understand that. All are equal. Because Paul is also going to say there's neither Jew nor Gentile. Male or female. You're all one in Christ. It went to the Jew first, but they were the ones who had received the covenants. They were the ones through whom the Messiah was coming. And so the message was first preached to them. But that does not give them some kind of a greater category of who they are in comparison to everyone else. The wall of partition was torn down, according to Paul. And God has taken from both groups, made one new man. The church. The church is made up of Jews and Gentiles alike. Equal footing at the cross. From all nations, tribes and tongues. And in light of that, Message, this is, this is Paul saying, I'm not ashamed of it. Think of everything that it accomplishes, that God wills for it to accomplish. How can we be ashamed of that message? This should be very emboldening for us. Because we recognize that I don't have to have all the answers in order to share the gospel with someone in hopes that they would come to faith. I just need to give them the message, the foolishness of the cross, that message, and let God do his work. Because that's not my area. I can't save anyone. I can't convince them enough. I can't present the greatest argument in order to convince anyone. I can't do it. And neither can you. You can't do it either. Because what has to happen... They have to have their heart of stone removed. They have to receive a heart of flesh. That God himself does this work. 
and no one else takes part in that. You can't do it. So regardless of what, or regardless of how intimidated that we may be initially to speak to someone, we shouldn't be. We shouldn't be intimidated at all. We shared this with you before, and I'm sure that you've heard it before, that Dr. MacArthur was sharing the gospel with a gentleman, and he interrupted MacArthur as he was in the middle of giving the gospel, and he said, wait, 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 wait. You mean to tell me that you believe some guy got swallowed by a fish? And MacArthur said, well, we'll get to Jonah in a minute. Continued presenting the gospel to this man, and the man was converted. And then Dr. MacArthur said, so do you want to talk about Jonah? And the man said, no. If it's in there, I believe it. How can that happen? How is that even remotely possible? Because something happened to the man through the message that was given to him. Because God used the message of the cross to take out the heart of stone, to give him a heart of flesh, give him the ability to believe the gospel. It doesn't matter what kind of intellect they have, dear friends. Preach the gospel to them. Declare the gospel to them. And then let God do his work. You don't have to try any manipulative anything. You give them the clear gospel. And God does the work. But it takes us to actually believe that. To trust that. As Paul is saying here, it's the power of God and the salvation for everyone who believes. Do, do you believe that? That's the question. Do you believe that? Now he continues on. Not only talking about the gospel being the power of God and the salvation for everyone who believes. But then he says that in it... The gospel, the righteousness of God, is revealed. Now, what does he mean by that? You know, there are a variety of opinions on this, uh, at least throughout church history. Is what exactly does this mean? The righteousness of God is revealed. Is it talking about the judicial justice of God that is revealed in the gospel? Is it the righteous character of God that is revealed in the gospel? Is it the righteousness of God that is imputed to the believer that is revealed in the gospel? Yes. You don't see any greater demonstration of God's justice than when he pours out his wrath upon his son. That sin must be paid for. It must be. There is no God just give you a little wink there. You can come on in. No, sin has to be dealt with. And it's either going to be dealt with by Christ or it's going to be dealt with by you. Is God's character shown in that? Yes, absolutely, because God must always do what is right. And that, that idea of righteousness, especially within the Old Testament, is the rightness of God. That he's just. And because he is just in his character 
He must do what is right, and what is right is to punish sin. And so his justice that he pours out upon his son is right. And it's right for the sins of those that, he, that, that he's being punished for. To the degree that he was punished, it was right. And then when we talk about the righteousness of God revealed in the gospel, are we talking about the righteousness of God that is applied to the believer? And that's true. Yes. So you not only see that God is just, but he is the justifier of those who believe in Christ, and he can justify them because of the righteousness of Christ applied to them. So all of these things are seen in the gospel. God's justice, his righteous character, and the righteousness that is applied to the believer. These are revealed within the gospel. There are times in which <clears throat> in his, the history of the church that that has been forgotten or lost or misunderstood. There was a 14th century influential um, theologian named Gabriel Beale who taught that the righteousness of God, he taught it as the righteousness that he possesses and demands. He writes this, do what is in you, that is, do your best. Do what you can do, and God will complete it. For God chose to obligate himself to infuse grace into all who do what they can, especially by taking the sacraments. This is what this 14th century theologian had said. He didn't understand that the righteousness that is revealed in the gospel is the righteousness of Christ applied to the believer or imputed to the believer. He understood it as the righteousness that God alone possesses and demands. There, there's, no, there's no hopeful, uh, uh, there's, no, there's no hope given here. It's God is righteous. He demands righteousness of you. So just do your best. Do your best. God will complete it. But make sure you're taking the sacraments. It's not very hopeful. <clears throat> and in fact, that's probably taking with the, that kind of an idea or that kind of a view. No wonder Luther himself hated to hear about the justice of God or the righteousness of God. Hated it. He was constantly in fear. Because he understood very clearly, I can't do that. I can't punish myself enough. I can't afflict myself enough. I can't crawl up Pilate's staircase enough and cause myself pain in order to try to purge myself of what I know is ultimately going to be there anyway. I can't do it. And so this is where Luther really struggled with the righteousness of God. But he finally, finally came to understand that what was meant by the righteousness of God was not God's retributive justice, but the, righteous, the righteousness that is freely imputed to the sinner by God's sovereign grace on account of Christ. Here's what Luther says. He says, at last, by the mercy of God... I began to understand that the righteousness of God is that by which the righteous lives by a gift of God, namely by faith. And this is the meaning. 
The righteousness of God is revealed by the gospel, namely the passive righteousness with which merciful God justifies us by faith. As it is written, he who through faith is righteous shall live. Here I felt that I was altogether born again and had entered paradise itself through open gates. Wow. All the time that he lived as an Augustinian monk, afflicting himself, hating the justice of God, and then he reads this passage as he's studying this, he's studying Galatians, and he came to understand what it actually meant, and he says, it's like I entered paradise. What a relief it was to him. What a comfort it was to him. What a joy it was to Luther. Understanding, yes, I can't do it. But he did it. And he says, this is the righteousness of God that is revealed in the gospel, namely the passive righteousness with which merciful God justifies us by faith. The passive righteousness is what he often referred to as well as an alien righteousness. It's not ours. It's somebody else's that was freely given to us. So we're passive in it. Freely given to us, imputed to us, credited to us, that on account of that righteousness, God may justify us. That's why he's, that's why Luther was so adamant when it came to under this understanding of justification by faith. That's why the rest of the reformers were very adamant about this as well. This is God's gracious verdict that is pronounced upon the believer on account of Christ's righteousness that you're not guilty. It's a declaration by God, not guilty. Luther and Calvin both define this in the same way that the righteousness of God is indicating the righteousness that avails before God. The righteousness of God is revealed, he says. The righteousness of Christ is revealed in the gospel. The righteous character of God is revealed in the gospel. All of it revealed in the gospel. Douglas Moo says... Speaking of the righteousness of God, he says, it's the entire process by which God acts to put people into saving relationship that Paul calls faith. This gospel presents to us the righteousness of God. One writer says that the message of the gospel is not just interesting information, but a transforming declaration. This message of the Son. So as Luther says, when he came to understand what the righteousness of God was, it was a passive righteousness credited to the believer, imputed to the believer. It's an alien righteousness, meaning it's not from ourselves, it's from Christ. He says, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. And what does that mean? Again, there's no shortage of opinions on a lot of these, uh, these statements that are made here. From faith to faith, Charles Hodge, he believes that this phrase is to be intensive. 
a forceful phrase to emphasize that salvation is entirely of faith. It's a forceful expression. The righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. It's not from faith and works. It's not from faith and living a good life. It's faith from faith to faith. It's, it's all of faith. The entire thing is from faith. Our justification is by faith alone. Salvation is entirely of faith. That's the emphasis here. The righteousness of Christ being imputed to you is not faith plus something else. It's entirely a faith from the beginning of your salvation through the end of your salvation. It was entirely a faith. Now, if we really believe that, then that in itself is something to begin to reflect upon as we begin to look at ourselves often. How can I be saved? Well, I believed, but yet I'm not doing this. I believe, but I'm not living this way. And what he's saying is it's entirely a faith from faith to faith. All of it is faith. There is nothing else to do. And that's the difficult part. Surely this can't be it. I believe upon Christ and that's it. Yeah. That's what he said. It's entirely a faith. And when we talk about faith, we've talked about faith before. What is it? It's having a knowledge. It's assenting to the facts of the gospel, agreeing to the facts of the gospel, and reliance and trust. Reliance and trust in those facts. The facts of who Christ is, what he accomplished. So the entirety of your faith, the object of your faith, is all outside of yourself. It's all him. It's all him. We don't look to him and we say, okay, Lord, you have accomplished all of this, but I still have to look at me. That's why he keeps emphasizing, look unto Jesus, the author and finisher of faith. Behold the Son. And this is what Jesus said. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who beholds the Son and believes in him will have eternal life, and I myself will raise him up on the last day. Those are Jesus' words in John. This is the promise. And this is a sure promise. Everyone who believes will have eternal life. What must I do to work the works of God? Believe, is what what Jesus said. The righteousness of God that is revealed in the gospel that brings about this salvation is entirely of faith. Saving faith. Nothing of you. And beloved, you need to understand that. It's so easy to, to fix our eyes upon ourselves and to get very frustrated with ourselves because we fail. And yes, we fail, and we're going to fail. You are going to fail. But this is why this is good news. Because he didn't fail. He didn't fail. That's why the scripture says, he who believes in him will not be disappointed. 
The righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith as it is written. But the righteous, the righteous man shall live by faith. Now here's the Apostle Paul speaking to this church in Rome, full of all of these different ideas and religious uh, ceremonial rituals, all of this. Various philosophers, these philosophers whose knowledge can never come to understand who God is. And Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It's the power of God to convert all that are there and the righteousness of God that we are all seeking to, to attain for ourselves that we can never do is applied to us or credited to us through the Son, and it's all of faith. And then God says to us, my righteous one will live by faith. What a great emphasis it was to the church at Rome, especially you know, having uh, Jews that are there, perhaps in many of the churches, especially within those early days, no doubt trying to uh, uh, get rid of some form of, of Judaizing. The Judaizers who would try to merge parts of the law as far as keeping the ceremonial aspect of things for the purpose of salvation in conjunction with what Christ has accomplished. And what Paul is saying here is to separate all that out and say, no, none of this is going to work. It's all of faith. What a comfort that would have been to this church. Your standing before God is not dependent upon you, but upon Christ. As it is written, the righteous man shall live by faith. This is a quote that is taken from Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 4. This is from the Old Testament. This quotation is during a time <clears throat> in which Habakkuk is actually complaining unto the Lord. And he's saying, you know, your people, the people of Judah, they're committing all kinds of wicked acts. And, and what are you doing? You're not doing anything. So the Lord says, I want you to write something down here. I want you to describe it on some tablets here. And this prophecy is going to come. It's going to, it's going to tarry for a little while, but it will surely come. And what does he tell the prophet? He says, I'm raising up the Chaldeans. And I'm going to use this, them as the instrument in my hand in order to chastise my people. And the prophet says, oh, Lord, how can you do that? Your eyes are too pure to view evil with favor. And he begins to question the goodness of God and the character of God. And then he says one of my favorite parts of Scripture. He says, I'm going to go sit in the tower and wait for you to reprove me. Because he already knew he was wrong. But he began to question. And this is where the Lord says, write this down. You're not going to believe this, even if I tell you. But write it down. This is surely going to come. And God is going to bring judgment not only upon Judah, but he's also going to judge the wicked nation of Babylon. And then as, as you're thinking of that, and perhaps as the prophet is thinking of that too, and then you have this comforting a statement from the Lord himself as he strengthens the faith of the prophet. You know, well, if, if God is judging our nation and he's judging that nation, who may stand before God? If we're his people and he's judging us in such a way, and then he's going to judge them, how may we be right before God? And what does God say to him? But my righteous one will live by faith. And so taking from that scenario and Paul dropping it in the same scenario in Rome as they are among a pagan people and, and talking about God's justice and, and his vengeance against sin and all of that, the question still stands. It's a question for all the ages. How may we be right with God? And what does he say? The righteous one lives by faith. 
the justified one, as some interpret it or translate it. The justified one will live by faith. What is emphasized again? Faith is the instrumental cause of your justification before God. Nothing else. This is the emphasis here. Nothing else will suffice. Nothing else will do. It's believing upon the Lord Jesus. Him being the object of your faith. Trusting alone in who he is and everything that he accomplished. And this alone is what justifies. Believing this. And this is why the prophet, as he, as he finishes his, his book in Habakkuk 3, he says, Though the fig tree shall not blossom, and there be no fruit on the vines, yet I will exult in the Lord, I will rejoice in the God of my salvation. In every age and in every circumstance, the question is the same. I may be accepted before God. What must I do? The righteous will live by faith. This is the passage that God used to change the whole trajectory of Luther's life and so many others because of the good news that is brought out in this passage. The good news of Christ, we know that. But this good news, this message alone is what converts a heart. Nothing else will do. You don't have to have all the answers to everyone's uh, view of whatever religion that they may have or, or scientific information or whatever. These things are good. And when you, again, when you talk about apologetics, what does apologetics accomplish? It accomplishes silencing your opponent. And then there's a way made to give the gospel. So it's good. But you don't have to know every single thing. It's the gospel that saves. It's the gospel alone that is the power of God and the salvation. And that's the good news. Because we don't have time to study everything. We don't have time to study every belief that is out there. We'd spend a whole lifetime just trying to understand a few. What do you need to know? You need to know that Jesus died for sinners. And that everyone who believes will have eternal life. That's the good news. So that's what we trust in. It's not just good information, as the one theologian said, but it's a transforming declaration. And then, as you are being uh, more bold in your, your evangelism. And I understand this, as we've talked about before. Evangelism is not successful because people come to faith. This is something else that we need to understand. You go out and you, you go share the gospel or uh, some of the churches that we grew up in, I always call it soul winning. We're going soul winning. Well, we can't win a soul. We just need to say we're going to go give the gospel. But you, you walk away from some encounters and you think, you know, did I not say everything right? 
I presented it to them. They said they understood. But they still didn't convert. What did I miss? What did I do wrong? And so surely, because they didn't convert, well, it, it wasn't successful. That's how we think. That's why I can't stand. I mean, I really cannot. This isn't a time for me, you know, to you know, have you as, as counselors, you know, and we're in a therapy session. But I cannot stand to hear some evangelist that is being introduced to a, a crowd or whoever. Over 30,000 people were converted under his ministry. And I think, wow, you're really humble, dude. What a humble guy. No, I think to myself, you probably don't even have a clue how many people are actually converted. All you did was probably have somebody raise some hands and fill out some cards and you got to put that on your resume. You have no idea where these people are even at. And yet you're taking such credit away from God. What makes evangelism successful is not that people come to faith. It's that you're faithful in doing it. You cannot save anyone. And so the saving part is not your area. You can't do it. So evangelism is successful because the people of God are being faithful in delivering this good news. Believing that it is the power of God and the salvation and allowing the Lord himself to do whatever it is that he wills to do. Because only he can open the eyes of the blind. Only he can make dead people live. And then also, dear friends, rest assured that your salvation is not dependent upon how well you're doing. We have emphasized that over and over and over again throughout these last couple of months, and we're going to keep doing so because it's easy to forget. It's not about how well you're doing. It's about how well he did. It's not about any perfection that you may ever have, because you're never going to have any. At least not here. The good news is, also part of the good news, is that one day you will. But you're never going to attain it here. So don't look at yourself, but understand and know your salvation, your justification in the Lord is by faith and faith alone. It's not about how good you do because how good that we do and how well that we live and our submission and our obedience, all of that is part of the new life in Christ, which is part of sanctification, not part of justification. Justification all has to do with him. Your obedience, your submission, these are things that the spirit of God brings about in you throughout your life. Not having any cause in your justification. So that's why the prophet or the apostle emphasizes that salvation is entirely of faith, from faith to faith, nothing more. And the righteous live by faith. Do you believe that? Because you should. Because this is the testimony of Scripture. So be comforted, dear friends. 
Be comforted to know that even though we fail, that we have an advocate with the Father. Even though that we fail, his mercies are new every morning. Even though we fail, he saved us in spite of ourselves. Even though we fail, one day he will make us brand new when he calls us home. And the very life that you long to live in that perfection will be yours at God's appointed time. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this wonderful passage of Scripture. This passage that, Father, gives us such hope and joy and comfort. Thank you that our salvation is not anything that we can do, but it's all of what Christ did. Thank you for this, this great comfort that we have through this portion of your word. And may we all, may we all by the Spirit of God receive it with such delight and believe it and believe that the gospel is the only message that you use to bring sinners to faith because it's all about him. It's all about your son. Thank you so much, Father, for your salvation, for Christ and everything that he accomplished for us, for the privilege that we have of knowing you and of serving you, of being loved by you. Father, to you be the praise, the glory, and the honor in all things. For it's in Jesus' name we pray, and all God's children said, Amen.